This morning, our scripture comes from the fourth chapter of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, this is probably, and, and I've said this before, outside the Gospels, this is probably my favorite book, letter of the New Testament. It is um, just a, a wonderful letter that Paul writes that is filled with words, as we'll hear this morning, of, of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of joy. It's sometimes called the epistle of joy. Uh, and it's, it's not out of character for Paul, but there are other places and other letters that Paul writes where he's much more um, critical. He's, he's much more um, confrontational at times. But that's not this letter, and this letter is just one that, that, um, that just speaks to the, um, the gratitude of, of his heart, which is an interesting reality based on some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in a few moments. But I want to, to read these par- portions of the, the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 4. And this is what we read. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And and again, hear that. My, My joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, speak your peace and your word into our hearts today. Wherever we are, meet us where we are and do with us as you will that we would grow in faith, in unity, and in service to Christ Jesus our Lord. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. I have, um, I've shared with you before that, um, like many others, I am a chronic um, channel surfer when I watch television. I, I flip and I watch, you know, a few minutes here, then I, I'm always afraid I'm missing something better on another channel. So I'm always kind of searching and looking and, and moving around. And I've, I've told you before, it drives Tony crazy when I do it, which is why she doesn't watch TV with me very much. And, um, but, but the reality is there are certain things that when I'm channel surfing, usually what I would call older movies, and when I say older movies, I'm, I'm talking about kind of according to my generation, my definition of old movies and, you know, Ryan's definition of old movies or your definition of old movies may be different. But uh, there are certain things in movies when I see that if, if I hit a channel and that movie's on, I'm, I'm done. I'm stopping because that'll catch me. The Karate Kid is one of those movies, the original Karate Kid. Okay, that's a movie that if I see it, I'm, I'm, I'm there until Danielson wins at the end, and I'm there. 
And um, I was watching TV a few months ago. Ryan was actually in the bedroom with me and flipping through the channels, and I came across another one of those movies for me. And it was from the early 80s, and it was a movie by the name, by the title of War Games. How many of you remember War Games? All right, you guys win. Most of you, more in this service than any of the others. Uh, Matthew uh, Broderick, uh, Ali Sheedy. Uh, and, and the basis of the movie, if you, if you haven't seen it, it, well, before I even get into the basis, what you have to understand is it's, it's a contextual movie because it was a movie that, that plays upon the tensions, the fear, the anxiety that was part of the Cold War. It was part of the, the, the nuclear threat between the United States and, and the USSR. And so it, it, it's one of those movies you have to understand that dynamic that was at work. And I consider myself part of the last generation that came of age during the Cold War. I'm a, I'm a kid of the 80s. That's the generation that I identify of those formative years. And so that was, I think, the kind of the last generation of, of the Cold War, though we certainly are seeing some of the um, reemergence of some of those tensions. But that was a war, if you will, a tension that began decades before. And some of you um, have lived through the entire kind of experience of the Cold War. It, it birthed really in the aftermath of World War II. It birthed out of the, the development of, of nuclear weapons. And the 50s is really the time that, that most historians kind of identify as the rise of, of the Cold War. And it was the first time in human history that two rival nations, superpowers, had the potential to completely annihilate each other. And out of that, and out of the nuclear threat and, and the fears of, of Cold War, I mean, how many of you remember fallout shelters? Any, okay, some of you fallout shelters. Um, how about duck and cover drills in elementary school? I always thought that is, now I, that was a little before my time, but um, I'm not being smart, Alec, it was. I mean, but, but that to me is one of the silliest things ever, because when a nuclear bomb hits, your desk ain't helping. It's just not. But, but anyway, you, so you, you, a lot of you identify and you understand, and we all, to a point, can, can understand that. But an acronym developed out of the Cold War era. It started in the 50s. And it was the acronym MAD, or MAD. Anybody know what MAD stood for? Yes, Mutually Assured Destruction. Mutually assured destruction. It was the reality that if that kind of a war started, both sides would lose. And if you remember the movie War Games, this is why I kind of tied that in. That was the whole point of the movie. You know, in the game, he, Matthew Broderick's character hacks into a computer, and the computer thinks it's playing a game, and the game is global thermal nuclear war. I'm going to say that slowly. And it is starting to trigger an actual um, launch of missiles, an actual war. And the whole point is the computer has to learn through scenario after scenario that there's not one single scenario where one side wins. That every scenario that it could possibly, every situation that could possibly be developed, both sides lose. It was mad or madness, mutually assured destruction. Now, here's an interesting counterpoint to it. Out of that era, out of that 
weight of, of um, threat, I should say, of, of disaster and, and fear and, and nuclear shelters and duck and cover drills. Out of that birthed a satirical look at life, a publication that used the same three letters, M-A-D. And it actually started as a comic strip in 1952, and a couple years later would become a magazine that we know as Mad Magazine. A satirical look at life, a magazine that lampooned everybody. And, and there's been some controversy over the years with Mad Magazine, but you're probably at least familiar with it, and you're probably at least familiar with the character that would emerge a couple years later that became the face of Mad Magazine. What was his name? Alfred E. Newman. And what was his motto? What? Me worry? That was his motto. And it was a, it was an opposite way of looking at life. And it was satirical and it lampooned everybody. And, and I heard it once advertised as it was written for those between the ages of 10 and 100. And, um, but, but what it did was it took this slogan that wasn't new to Mad Magazine or Alfred E. Newman. And I think in some ways it reminded us of a profound truth. And I think it's a truth, well, in fact, I'm sure it's a truth that goes back much further than Alfred E. Newman. In fact, he didn't initiate it. In fact, we can find the same sentiment in a little bit of a different wording here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. When he says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Or some of your translations may read, do not worry about anything. It's almost as if Paul's saying, what, me worry? And that is stark, and that is fascinating, and that is powerful, because this epistle of joy that Paul writes, this, this letter that is filled with gratitude and appreciation and praise to God and, and all of these wonderful um, words of of thankfulness. When you read that, you, you would, if, if you don't know the reality, the tendency is to think that Paul writes this letter from a great place, a place where he is just um, experiencing the best of life, that, that he's just having everything go his way, because very often that's when gratitude most rises up within us, when things are good. I mean, when life is good and, and everything's breaking your way, it's hard not to be grateful for that. And we would read this letter and we think Paul must be really having a good day when he writes this. Except, not so much. You know where Paul was when he wrote Philippians? He's in prison. He's in jail. He's chained up. He's a prisoner. And while he's not facing mutually assured destruction, he is facing personally assured destruction. He's on a path that he knows is going to lead to the end of his life, to his execution for the cause of Christ. And yet, in the face of that, Paul writes these words, do not worry about anything. What me worry? What Paul is saying, what I think Mad Magazine marketed is a profound truth that we need to firmly take hold of. That is that we cannot control the events, all the events that are around us. We cannot control sometimes the circumstances that we may find ourselves in. Sometimes we can, but not always. 
We can't control the superpowers that would wage war. We can't control necessarily the threat of ISIS or of Boko Haram or of the, the, the violence in Africa or the threats in China or the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri or the violence of Oklahoma or the stuff that happens sometimes in our own neighborhoods. What we can control is how we react to it. What we can control is the way that we see it, not through the eyes of fear, but through the eyes of faith. And that's the challenge that Paul speaks to the church, and it's the challenge that Paul himself faces. Because, see, Paul resists the temptation that I fall into so often and that you may fall into so often. I mean, Paul's having a bad day. That's putting it mildly. That's, 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 that's treating it too lightly. But he's having a bad day. And I know that when I have bad days, I'm not control, comparing my circumstances to Paul's, but when things aren't going my way, I'm not getting the breaks, life is tough, people are angry with me, I've fallen short of, of some goal I've set for myself, it is very, very easy for me to fall into the trap that Paul refuses to fall into. And that is, it's very easy for me to throw myself a good, old-fashioned pity party and invite anybody who wants to come. It's really easy for me to fall into the, life's not fair, life's so hard, life's too difficult, whatever that may look like for me or what it may look like for you. Paul doesn't go there. I'm not saying Paul doesn't have his moments, but he doesn't stay in those places. Even in prison, he worships God and he celebrates the blessings that are all around him. And I think, how does Paul do that? How does he do it? And he tells us how he does it. Because Paul had learned the gift, the art, the ability to shift his focus and to be very intentional about what he saw and what he was looking at. To not get trapped into the self-pity. Into You know what? I was thinking about this this morning. It was in a much lighter way. But, but when I was growing up and, and playing Little League baseball, playing t-ball and baseball and... and um, you know, baseball is a tough sport to play if you um, have perfectionist tendencies. If you think every time you should be successful, baseball is not the game for you uh, because you know the averages. I mean, errors happen, strikeouts happen. But I didn't always react well when things didn't go my way. And, and I can remember, and he's sitting right here, so he'll testify that that dad I never got angry with me for striking out, never got angry with me for making an error, never got angry for any of those things. But he would get angry at me for one thing on the baseball field. What was it? The hang doggy. <laughs> this is the hang doggy. That's the hang doggy. That's the pity party. That's the, I didn't do well, I just struck out, poor me. And that's what I would get in trouble for. Because, and that happens in all aspects of life, the, my story may not be yours, but we all have the, because the lesson I needed to learn and still need to learn is that I can't control all of those things, but I can control how I react to it. And that's what Paul says to us. And so Paul says there's some keys 
to learning how to shift your focus. Now, you need to understand that the foundation of all of Paul's life, the foundation on his outlook on life, the foundation of his joy, the foundation of his hope, the foundation of his purpose was Jesus. And I know that's what you expect to hear in church, but you expect to hear it because that's exactly what the truth was. Paul believed whether he was sitting chained in prison or he was preaching in the synagogues, whether he was traveling the Mediterranean or he was being transported as an enemy of the state, Paul believed no matter what the circumstances, the joys or the sorrows, the celebrations or the floggings, whatever it was, Jesus was with him. He believed there was not a moment, not a second, not a place, not an experience he could have that Jesus wasn't there. And he trusted in the assurance and the promise that Christ had given that your days are taken care of on this earth and what is to come. And so he had no fear because he understood Jesus was there. So the foundation of his faith, his bedrock, his cornerstone is Jesus and his faith in the presence of Jesus. And because of that, it allowed him to look for Jesus. And where he looked mattered. And where he looked is what allowed his perspective to shift, his focus to change. And it's the same challenge we have because this is an intentional thing. This isn't something that just happens. We have to own this responsibility. And he tells us exactly what it is in verse 8 when he says, and he writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, hear this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, he says this, think on these things. As I heard a youth pastor once say to me, Chris, garbage in, garbage out. Think on these things, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy. This is what you need to be taking in. And too many of us are looking in the wrong places and taking in the wrong kind of stuff. Now, this is not a live in denial. This is not a don't acknowledge that there's difficulties and there's pain and there's sorrows and there's challenge in life. But this is Paul saying, don't spend your time there. Allow Christ to turn your attention to the places you can see God is working, to the ways that you can be uplifted because you see the presence of Christ that is at work and that is real. But too often, we allow ourselves, and we allow ourselves, okay? This is not, people don't do this to us. We allow ourselves to get trapped in the places that just cause our spirits to sink, our, our hope, our joy to just seep away. For me, I'll tell you, it is, it is the thing that has provided so much um, resource in my life that also sometimes steals my joy, and that is the computer, the internet. Because I get wonderful ideas, and I can research, and I can study, and I can learn, and all those are great things. But, but there's just some junk out there. And I sometimes become like a, a, like a, a driver uh, rubbernecking. I just want to see the, the carnage. And, I, and I'll find for me, this is my, it's when I allow myself to not just read an article. I do this all the time. It's the dumbest thing in the world. I read a great uplifting article about a person of faith and how they've lived out their faith and the difference they're making in the world. And I just, like a dummy, I don't stop. And I have to let myself slip down into the comment section underneath where ugliness happens. And all of a sudden I feel my joy seep away 
because I'm looking at the junk. I've taken my eyes off the praise, praiseworthy and noteworthy, and I started to look at the, at the garbage. And that's my choice. And I'm turning the wrong way. And you have those traps in your life. You have this. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to meddle here a little bit. For some of you, back away from the 24-hour news channels, please. Step. I'm not telling you don't watch them, and I'm certainly not telling you don't be informed, and I'm not telling you which one to watch, but I'm telling you back away. When you're filling 24 hours of news, you're looking for stuff. And sometimes, I can tell you, sometimes when all you're taking in is the violence and the anger and the darkness and the, the horrors of the world, it begins to cloud your vision. Just step away a little bit. We need to sometimes be aware that we need to be focusing our attention on the things that are right and noble and bring joy and honor God. And that, again, isn't, we don't have to ignore the tragedies of the world, but sometimes even in those we see God at work when we're willing to look in the right places. I remember years ago when I was in seminary working, um, doing my chaplaincy at, at Duke Medical Center. Um, and as most university hospitals are, um, it, was, it was a pretty heavy place. I mean, it, it was not the kind of hospital where, especially in the pediatric units, where we would often do rotations. Uh, it wasn't the kind of place kids were coming in for tonsillitis or for minor nicks and, and illnesses. I mean, it was kids dealing with cancer. It was, it was heavy, horrible, painful stuff. And uh, I always have had an appreciation for nurses because my mom was a nurse, but I, that appreciation skyrocketed seeing the, the ministry that these nurses and the, the, the just compassion that they lived out every day. But, but I remember walking into the nursery one day the pediatric nursery there. And the nurses were dressing a little baby that had died. And they were dressing the baby so that the parents could come and say goodbye. And I remember just being overwhelmed with the grief and the sorrow and, and, and just, just seeing all of this around. I mean, I, I'll tell you, when, when we, we carried beepers then, and, and we could identify the unit by the number. They would beep for the chaplain if we were needed, and the number told you what floor you were going to. And I, I'm not kidding we prayed when we heard that thing, don't be the pediatric unit. Don't be that unit. Because that was the hardest place to go. And I asked one of the nurses one day, I said, how do you do this? I mean, how do you do this every day? How do you see this without not being coming, just overcome with the, the grief? And uh, she said to me, she said, you know what I do? Said, I make myself go to the playground and watch kids play. I make myself go to places where their kids are having fun and laughing and playing, not to deny the reality that she saw every day, but to remind herself that wasn't the ultimate reality. That wasn't the defining thing. To allow some joy in to a place where she had chosen out of compassion and love to be at this critical place at such a time of need. Now, we may not be in that kind of place, but we need to be intentional. We need to absolutely be intentional about allowing ourselves to see, to receive, to take in the things that are joyful and admirable and worthy. Paul says it's critical. It's critical to not having your spirit get crushed because there's a lot of tough stuff that we deal with. And again, let me just say, this isn't denying reality. This isn't bury your head in the sand. 
but this is to balance that. And don't let that be the defining data that is, is filling your, uh, your hard drive, if you will. So we intentionally look. Because see, what, what Paul knew is that when he was focused on Jesus, no matter where he looked, he'd see Jesus. Even in prison, he'd see Jesus. And he'd see him at work. And he'd see the blessings. And we need to learn to see the same way. And this is why. Because in verse 8, I'm sorry, in verse 9, Paul writes this. He says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. What's the key to the peace? What's the peace that Paul talks about that God promises that will will pass all understanding, that will guard our hearts and our minds? It is a peace that allows us to see God at work and remember the purpose that we've been called, to focus on the positive and to live into our purpose. Brothers and sisters, you've been called, you've been gifted, you've been empowered to be the agents, the hands and feet, the instruments of God's grace and his hope and his peace. But when we become clouded, when we let the darkness overcome, when we take our eyes off the light of Christ, we become jaded and we become closed and we become bitter and we miss the opportunity and the purpose for which God has called. Paul says, stay about the purpose. Trust in God who is at work in all the circumstances. Again, Paul's writing this from prison. So he's not denying his reality, but he's saying this experience doesn't define me. This experience and this darkness isn't what I see. I see Jesus. And that's why even in prison he worshiped and he sang and he led others to Christ because he never lost his purpose that we would stay focused on the positive, on the light of Christ, on the evidence of God's hand, and be about our purpose. Because what we are reminded in faith is that God works to redeem all things. God works to bring purpose even out of those things that were meant for evil. And in case you doubt it, don't ever forget what we look at every time we gaze upon the cross. It's an instrument of death. It was a device of execution and suffering and torture. And it was the way a criminal died. And yet, how many of us see that when we look at the cross? We don't. We see life. We see redemption. We see salvation. We see hope. Because Jesus turns things around. He changes them. He lets us see something that wasn't originally there because of the redemption work that is his presence. See it. See it. Let the positive fill you out. Again, I know that we're going to have those moments, and I think Paul had those moments. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul had that moment. He prayed sometimes, God, take it away. He probably had those moments where he started to slip into the pity party, but he didn't stay there because he, he immediately let God shift his focus and to see the positive, and remain attentive to his purpose, that we do the same. When you feel yourself going there, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and stay about the hope and the promise and the strength that you've been called to and that he gives. That is the positive and that is the purpose. Let that be who we are and let that be the joy that floods our spirits, the peace that Christ speaks into our lives. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that um, you're a God of redemption. You're a God that, that takes things for what they are and makes them more than we could have ever imagined they could be. 
and you redeem us. And in our lives and our journeys, help us to fix our eyes in the right places, to be filled with those things that bring hope and joy and peace. Be attentive to the positives that are all around us and to the purpose for which you have called us. Make us faithful, Lord. Bless us, forgive us, redeem us when we fall short, and empower us in the journey until the day comes that we are surrounded by your eternal glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen.